Hello and welcome to the student ministry podcast of Cedar Crest Bible Fellowship Church. I am Pastor Jules, and I'm excited that you have decided to join us here. The teaching or conversation you are about to hear is from our youth group ministry. I hope that you will find it encouraging. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please visit our website at cedarcrest.church students. So, I'm not really a preacher, but I'm giving this a role. I am a teacher by trade. I am a third grade teacher, so you guys are a lot older than my normal audience. Uh, I'll try to do a good job with you guys. But So, usually preachers like try to break down a passage and make it into uh, easier sections. So, we're going to look at this in three parts tonight. Okay? And I'm going to use some alliteration to try to be like a good preacher, right? You've got to have all your points uh, start the same way. So my own points that I made up myself that kind of go along with the headings uh, in your Bible. First, all my points start with a P, by the way. I'll try not to be like Pastor Chris and really pop my P's. He's known for that in life. <clears throat> so first, I see a prophetic procession. Second, I see a preview of Gentile salvation. And third, I see a predestined purpose. Hopefully these make sense as we go through this. But So if we look at the first section of Scripture here, verses 12 through 19, in your Bible it's probably marked with the section heading, the triumphal entry. And did you know that this is one of the few events mentioned in all four Gospels? Like I said, important. Each Gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, emphasizes different aspects of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. So ask yourself, how important is Jesus' coming to Jerusalem if it is in every Gospel? It's a big deal. This is the beginning of a week that changed the history of the world. The events of the next couple of days, as described in the Scriptures, are so impactful that we still talk about them today. I would go so far to say this week in history in the Bible is the climax of the gospel. Without these events that we read about today, we wouldn't be here studying the Bible. We wouldn't be coming to this church. So a prophetic procession. I'm calling this that because you already learned from Jules that Jesus, the night before, had just had supper at Bethany with Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary. While he was there, a large crowd came to see Jesus. They also came to see Lazarus because he had just been raised from the dead. Imagine hearing about someone being raised from the dead. If they were nearby, would you want to go see the person? I would. You know, I know I would be skeptical until I actually saw proof. Wait, you said he was raised from the dead? No, I need to see this myself. So this draws a huge crowd. And we know that part of the crowd are the chief priests. And we also know, if you read your Bible, they are not exactly Jesus' biggest supporters. Their plan is to capture and kill Jesus. And now, they even add Lazarus to that hit list. They want to kill Lazarus as well. In verse 12, it's the day after the dinner. And a large crowd that was with him last night follows Jesus to Jerusalem. But they aren't the only ones going to Jerusalem. The Passover drew many pilgrims from around the area to make a journey into the holy city to celebrate. 
And Jerusalem is seeing more and more people arrive in the city every day. The city is packed. The closest analogy I can think of is this. Imagine Times Square on New Year's Eve. People from all over the world make the trip to Times Square to usher in a new year by watching the ball drop. Well, for the Jewish people, Passover is that trip. They come to the holy city to celebrate Passover. Why am I calling this section a prophetic procession? I'm glad you asked. So, the exact day that Jesus enters Jerusalem fulfills one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Old Testament. In the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel prophesies there will be 70, exactly 70 weeks until there will be a time to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So, what it means there is 77, by the way, not weeks as we know them. So Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on this day isn't mere happenstance. It had been prophesied and predicted more than 400 years before it actually occurred. So this shows us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah predicted in Daniel's prophecy. We can have confidence that He is who He says He is. If you know your Bible or have heard about the triumphal entry before, you know that the way Jesus entered the city isn't what the Jews expected. <clears throat> the people wanted him to enter on a war horse to show that he was coming to overthrow the, Ro the Romans and establish a new kingdom in Jerusalem. However, this is not God's plan. The people line the streets, get palm branches, and cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna, I learned while I was doing a lot of reading to prep for this, Hosanna literally translated means, pray, save us. To us it would be, save us, we pray. So, in the Greek it seems a little bit like Yoda speech. But it's a plea to God to save them. In their cries of adoration, they also call Jesus, He who comes in the name of the Lord and the King of Israel. These titles are important, if you notice them in the verse. They're messianic titles. They are calling him the Messiah at this point. This is a huge moment in history. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus has hidden from attention. He has withdrawn from crowds again and again. He didn't seek popular opinion or approval from people. But yet here, we see him proceeding before the crowd, mounted on a donkey, accepting the adoration and cheers of the crowd. Even the Pharisees say, the world has gone after him. Why would Jesus do this? We're going to circle back to this a little later. In verse 14, we see that Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding a young donkey. This is another prophecy from the Old Testament being fulfilled. You can see in the passage of John, there's a quote from Zechariah 9.9. It's in verse 15. And this prophecy, again, like the one in Daniel, this one's even older. It's 500 years old. As all of these events are unfolding and prophecy is being fulfilled, no one except Jesus grasps the moment. Look at verse 16. The disciples don't get it. They're confused about what's going on. And they won't fully understand it until after Christ's death and His glorification. In verses 17 and 18, the word crowd here 
means some people from Bethany the day before, but also other pilgrims on their way to the city or in the city already. The crowd grows because the account of Lazarus is circulating through the city. Like Pastor Jules told you last week, the crowd's curious. We can speculate most gathered around Jesus because he raised someone from the dead, or they just got caught up in the moment of the procession, mob mentality. They have a very superficial belief in him. It's what can he do for us? In only four days, the same crowd will be shouting, crucify him. The Pharisees are also in the crowd, and remember how they wanted information and the whereabouts of Jesus so they could arrest him? Here he is, right in front of them. And they don't dare make a move. They're too afraid of the crowds. There's simply too many people for them to make a move. The crowd seems to be behind Jesus. The Pharisees are too afraid. They know their plan isn't working, and as a matter of fact, they turn on each other. If you look here, they... I don't think I have the verse in my notes. They say... They say, like, you see that you are gaining nothing? Like, they're, they're attacking each other here. They have this plan, and their plan isn't working. And they're kind of blaming each other that the plan isn't working. We aren't gaining anything. Our, what we tr- are trying to do is silence Jesus. And look, here's this huge crowd shouting his praises. What we're doing isn't working. <clears throat> now, they use a bit of hyperbole here, or over-exaggeration. Saying the whole world has gone after him isn't entirely true. Yet. Okay? It could be as many as one million people, though. Scholars say at that time Jerusalem could see about one million people. So I'm sure at that time it felt like the whole world was going after Jesus. The Pharisees don't realize, though, in a few short days, the whole world does have the opportunity to go after Jesus. The prophetic procession of Jesus into Jerusalem shows us that we can trust God's Word. It's true and accurate. It's inspired by God. Who else would know exactly what day Jesus would arrive in Jerusalem and exactly how He would enter the Holy City? We see here that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. This also means that we can trust what the Bible says about Christ's return. He is coming back to set up an everlasting kingdom. And the next time, it will be as a conquering king, riding on a white war horse. So kind of just a question for you to think about. Do you trust God's word? Do you take it at face value? The next section is what I'm calling a preview of Gentile salvation. And we see this throughout these verses. Um, In verse 20, there are some Greeks who go up to worship at the feast. We don't know a whole lot about these Greeks. Uh, I tried to do some research about them, and everything I read says we don't really know a whole lot about them. So they're here in Jerusalem. They are going up to worship, though. It's important to see that they want to worship at the feast. So this probably means that they are Greeks who follow the Jewish religion. And they approach Philip, and they say, hey, we want to see Jesus. And the translation here means that they don't just want to see him with their eyes and look at him. 
that actually want to talk with him. And more closely translated, it means interview him. They really want to question him and get to know him. And they don't just want to see him as he walks through the city. They want an intimate audience with Jesus. So pause for a moment. This is kind of an aside, a planned tangent, if you will. If you think back to the sermons that we've been having in the worship center, preached by our pastors, regarding the book of Matthew, not that long ago it was Christmas, and we were reminded of the birth story of Jesus. Remember the wise men? They were foreigners who traveled to Jerusalem, probably some 800 miles, to see the king of the Jews. When they arrived, they began inquiring throughout the city, where can we find the king of the Jews? They really want to meet him and see this new baby. And eventually, they're brought before Herod and the scribes. The scribes used scripture to determine that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Herod sends the wise men away. And do you remember Pastor Jason talking about, why doesn't anyone go with him? Like, he's like, I would want to follow. I would want to go with them. None of the Jews seem interested in going to Bethlehem. It's only these wise men. So there's a question here, which I think Pastor Jason brought up in his message. Why aren't the Jews looking for the newborn king? Aren't they God's people? Don't they have the scriptures? Don't they know this is supposed to happen? They've been anxiously awaiting a Messiah. It's been 400 years of silence. And the Gentiles are the only ones earnestly seeking the king. Here we see Jews gathered around Jesus, praising him, but in a very superficial way. They want him to overthrow the Romans. They don't really want him or a relationship with him. It's the Gentiles who once again give us a stark contrast to the Jewish people. It's the Gentiles who are seeking Christ. The Greeks, back to our verses here, tangent over. The Greeks probably approached Philip because of where he's from. It's mentioned here that he's from Beth- Bethsaida in Galilee, and this is not far from where the Greeks are probably from. So, Philip is the first one who gets approached, and he turns to Andrew. And you might be saying, well, why Andrew out of all the disciples? It turns out that Philip and Andrew are from the same town, so it makes sense that he goes to another guy from the same area. They also probably speak Greek because of where they grew up and where they're from. We don't know exactly why the Gentiles want an audience with Jesus, but it is probably safe to say they never get the chance to meet him face to face. If you look in the next verse, Jesus doesn't even seem to respond to Andrew and Philip when they come to him. Jesus answers, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They're probably like, what? Like, we asked you to see some Greeks. What are you talking about? They don't truly understand what this means. And then Jesus continues on to teach the disciples a lesson. And he uses a farming reference to tell them that death is the way to spiritual life and glory. Farmers understand that to have a harvest, you have to plant seeds. The seeds die and give way to a plant that returns more than the original seed. There's a multiplicative effect. One seed bears much fruit. 
as it says in the passage here. What Jesus says here was also meant to teach the disciples and us a foundational truth of the gospel. It is Christ's death that is the source of spiritual life to the world. His life was evidence of who he was and is, but without his death on the cross, there's no spiritual life. From his cross, a harvest of all mankind springs forth. People of every race, tribe, and nation who through faith in Jesus Christ receive eternal life and are part of the fruitful harvest that, result, that resulted from his death. He is the seed that must die to bear much fruit. His death brought many sons to glory. Christ was the second Adam, the new and better Adam. The Gospel teaches God's glory is revealed through the cross. His perfect, redemptive plan was on full display as Christ was crucified. It wasn't His life, the miracles He performed, or even His teaching. It was His death that brought forth fruit to, to the praise of God to redeem a people to Himself. Jesus knew that after the cross, the Gospel would spread far beyond the borders of Israel to all the nations of the world. It seems like he responds to the Greeks' request to see him by pointing to his impending death. You can see me when the Son of Man is lifted up in a few days. <coughs> they wanted to see him, but Jesus knew the only way they could truly enjoy fellowship with him was through his atoning sacrifice. Jesus continues on and gives us a practical application here. The uh, passage says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's important to point out that this doesn't literally mean hate your life. Okay? Jesus is saying we must be willing to give up everything to follow him. Okay? Think of when he called the disciples. He just said, follow me. And whatever they were doing, they stopped, they turned, and they followed <coughs> He must be our greatest treasure. There is to be nothing above Him or before Him. You have to bury your love of the world, its riches, its pleasures, its rewards, and acclaim with a full belief that you will gain something better in this life and after. The person who loves this life and everything in it will find that he loses everything. We're called to pick up our cross and carry it daily. We must, by the power of the Spirit, be willing to crucify our flesh. And we will find that we do not lose. Our gains actually far outweigh any losses. J.C. Ryle, one of the commentators I read, said, Unless we are willing to die to sin and crucify all that is most dear to flesh and blood, we cannot expect any benefit from Christ's death. Let us remember these things and take up our cross daily. Let us, for the joy set before us, endure the cross and despise the shame. And in the end, we will sit down with our Master at God's right hand. This looks foolish to the world. Why would we give up the things of this world? Or why would we not value the things we see right in front of us? There are people around us who chase these things all the time. But giving your life to God always brings gain. And this passage here is... Really getting to the heart attitude. You don't have to literally hate your life, but you do have to have God number one in your life. Above anything else. Because we as people were made to worship. 
We all worship something. The question is, what are you worshiping? What do you have first and foremost in your life? So looking back at verse 26, we see that anyone who confesses to know Christ will follow him. So this leads me to a question. What are the marks of a person who follows Christ? How do you know? How can you tell if this is a follower of Christ or a follower of someone else? To me, it boiled down to two things. Faith and obedience. Kind of like that old hymn, Trust and Obey. <clears throat> Faith and obedience are the marks of true belief in Christ. You take Christ out of His Word, you believe the Scriptures, you follow His commands. You live your life according to them. You walk the walk. You don't just talk the talk. I don't know if you guys still say that, but that was a thing when I was younger. I'm dating myself there. There are also two amazing blessings contained in this verse. First, where Jesus is, his servant will be also. A.W. Pink said this about the first blessing. That is nothing less than a promise of eternal heaven. Where's Jesus now? If you're a follower of Christ, you will be there too. We know that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. If we're to be with Him where He is, our end is in heaven, with Jesus and the Father. Whatever the Master has, so will the servant have also. We're co-heirs. We inherit the same inheritance that Christ gets. This is the great hope and promise we have after death. The second promise in this verse is that whoever serves Jesus will be honored by the Father. How much do we chase the praise and recognition of men? This promise, originally given to the Jews in 1 Samuel, now extends to all who believe. I don't know about you, but I will be overjoyed to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. This section reminds us not to chase after earthly desires. With the triumphant entry, expectations are high among the Jews. Take heart, brothers and sisters, that though this world has fallen and life is hard, we have hope and confidence that one day we will be with Jesus. Jesus was teaching the disciples that they won't get a crown in this life. They will get a cross. Imagine the moment. There's a crowd of up to a million people shouting praise and full of excitement. It's easy for the disciples to look around and think, this is it. The day is now. It's coming. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is here. We're about to be exalted. And Jesus shows them the cross and says, follow me. He encourages them that though there is a cross, there is a final reward as well. The reward is to be with Him in glory. The death of Jesus Christ, accompanied by His resurrection, is the most precious truth in the Christian faith. Without His death, there's no substitute for sin. If there's no substitute, there's no free gift of salvation. No salvation equals no hope after death. No hope equals no future but hell. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. The whole faith falls apart without it. 1 Corinthians 15.19 states, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
We are of all people most to be pitied. God preordained Christ's death in eternity past. It was always His plan to crush His Son to redeem us. The Old and New Testaments emphasize Christ being our once and for all substitutionary sacrifice. He accepts our penalty, and God pours out His justice and punishment for all sin on Christ. Christ's death fulfilled prophecy. The Old Testament taught that the Messiah would have to come to die. Again, back in Daniel 9, in that original prophecy, it says, the Messiah will be cut off, referring to his death. Zechariah 12.10 says, they will look on me, whom they have pierced. Isaiah 52 and 53 are famous chapters describing how the Messiah will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, he would be cut off from the land of the living and his grave assigned with wicked men. <clears throat> Details like he would be betrayed by someone close to him. Psalm 41.9. We all know that that's Judas. Zechariah 11.12-13 gave the exact amount of money Judas would receive to betray him. Isaiah 50 laid out the physical abuse Christ would suffer at his trial. And Psalm 22 stated that Christ's death would be crucifixion. <clears throat> Which, we know what crucifixion is because the cross is a huge symbol in our faith. But crucifixion doesn't originate in the Jews. To them, that's foreign. That is a Roman execution. And it's unfamiliar to them. So to think that it's prophesied in the Bible when it's something that they don't even know shows that God is the one behind it. The Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to a final sacrifice. Jesus even predicted his own death and told the disciples about it. In Luke 18, Matthew 20, and Mark 10, to name a few. I learned while studying this that roughly one-fifth of the material in the Gospel accounts covers this last week, these last few days of Jesus' life. The book of Acts and all the epistles flow out of Christ's death and resurrection. The whole purpose of the incarnation was Christ's death. Jesus himself said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's in Mark 10.45. In 1 John 3, he says, or it says, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. I have another quote for you from Henry Thiessen. It says this, Christ did not come primarily to set us an example or to teach us doctrine, but to die for us. His death was not an afterthought or an accident, but the accomplishment of a definite purpose in connection with the Incarnation. The Incarnation is not an end in itself, it is but a means to an end. And that end is the redemption of the lost through the Lord's death on the cross. Jesus taught about His own death all the time. And the disciples, time and time again, did not get it. In Matthew 16, He told His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, 
and be raised up on the third day. To Nicodemus, Jesus declared, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In John 6.51, he said of himself, The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. After Jesus' resurrection, he encounters two of his disciples who have failed to grasp the necessity of his death. The disciples still don't get it. And Jesus says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? That's Luke 24, 25 to 26. The death of Jesus Christ is the central theme of all apostolic teaching and preaching. Paul in Corinthians wrote, For I have delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. And what, what was that? That Christ died for sins, our sins, according to the Scriptures. Peter declared, Jesus delivered over by the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. The epistles instruct in the theology of Christ's death. In Romans, we learn, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. In 1 Peter, it talks about how Christ has died for sins once for all, that He might bring us to God. And Hebrews also mentions that because of Jesus' suffering and death, He was crowned with glory and honor. The death of Christ is also of supreme interest in heaven. Moses and Elijah spoke of Jesus' departure in Luke 9, 31. Two angels standing outside of the empty tomb after the crucifixion said, Jesus is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again? In Revelation, we see a vision of worship in heaven. And we see four creatures and elders fallen before the Lamb, and they worship Him, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Our ordinances that we still follow today are even grounded in the death of Christ. If you think of baptism, it pictures the believer's union with Christ in His death and resurrection. Likewise, the Lord's Supper, or communion, is a physical reminder that Jesus gave His body and blood for us. Up until now, Jesus has been speaking of His death. But now, He turns His face towards the cross. And we see the anguish He experiences. So the next section, I've called the predestined purpose. So we're starting in verses 27 and 28 here. It says, Now is my soul troubled. 
And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. My soul is troubled. What does this mean? This is similar to a passage in Luke 39, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus feels the weight of the cross before him. In anticipation of experiencing God's wrath and the shame of sin, and worst of all, separation from the Father, Jesus' soul becomes troubled. He's shaken by what is before him. This is strong language and could be translated as horrified. That's how troubled he is. He is horrified. Christ, being fully man and fully God, is the only person who could be our substitutionary sacrifice. We know in other places in the Bible that Christ experiences human emotion. He hungers, he thirsts, he weeps, he gets angry. What we see here is that Christ did not go to the cross like some robot. He anticipated the great pain and sorrow he was about to experience in a few days. And just like he prayed in the garden, rather, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. We see that similar passage. After expressing his anguish, his next words show how committed he is to going to the cross. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. He knows the whole reason for his life is for this predestined purpose. The cross. Jesus willingly gives up his life and goes to the cross. He submits to his Father's will. In Luke 39, in that sort of parallel section, he prays, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus would in view of his own eternal joy, complete the mission the Father had assigned him. After Jesus is done praying here, something amazing happens. For only the third time during Jesus' ministry, God's audible voice is heard. Look at verses 28 through 30. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd of people who stood by and heard it they didn't recognize the voice. Look at what they thought it was. Some of them thought it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to them. And then Jesus answers and says, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. The two other occasions of God speaking to Jesus audibly were at Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist and later at the Transfiguration. Just like those other passages... The fact that God speaks to Jesus affirms him as the Messiah. It confirms his identity. This is truly the Son of God. The people nearby don't seem to comprehend what the voice is saying. Again, some think it's thunder or an angel. Isn't it funny how during the most important Jewish holiday, God speaks and the Jews don't understand? It shows how hard their hearts are toward God. They're so caught up in their own expectations, they miss their Father speaking. I don't want to gloss over the fact that God is speaking. Our God is a speaking God. 
How did the universe come into existence? He spoke it. He spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He spoke to Abraham. It isn't that God is silent. The real issue is that fallen sinful people are deaf to His voice. Unbelievers, people dead in their sin, cannot hear God. Matthew 13, 13 says, While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. How am I doing on time, Jules? Am I way late? You're good. Okay. You can cut me off if I'm going too long. The next part was a bit puzzling for me. Why would Jesus say that the voice was for their sake if most of the people couldn't hear it clearly or understand it? After much reading, I think hearing God's voice was an encouragement to any true believers, especially the disciples. Thinking ahead, Jesus will be gone in a few days. He'll be dead. The apostles, being human like us, are clueless at first. It isn't until they see the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit comes that they truly understand all that Jesus has taught them. Either way, this voice affirms Jesus' deity. Continuing with verses 31 through 33, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. These verses point to three victories through the cross. First, judgment. It seems that Jesus' death is a crushing defeat at first. It seems like evil wins in killing the only sinless human being to ever live. That's just not true. It is true that everyone in the world who rejects Jesus faces judgment. Every person who denies Jesus as the Messiah has rightfully earned themselves eternal damnation in hell. So the first thing that he has victory over is the evil in this world. Second, the death and resurrection of Christ substantiate his victory over Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world, and in these verses we see that he will be cast out. This means he loses all influence and authority. Those who are dead in their sins are under Satan's dominion. They're under his influence. Believers are no longer slaves to sin and have been set free from its power. This doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. We aren't perfect this side of heaven. What it does mean is that we can overcome sin through the power of the Spirit. We're adopted by God and called sons and daughters when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We're no longer stuck in the darkness and hopeless. We have eternal hope. We can resist the devil. The final victory I see here is that when Jesus is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all men to himself. The world will follow Jesus. And this phrase, all men here, is both universal and exclusive. What do I mean by that? Well, it's universal in the sense that God will save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But it's exclusive because we know that not every single human being on earth will accept Jesus as their Savior. There's no access to God apart from the cross. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has predestined the people for himself. 
He will save all those He calls. That is a promise. We finish up here with verses 34 through 36. It says, The crowd answered Him, We have heard from the law that Christ, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself, hid himself from them. So the crowd, after originally praising him, adoring him, <coughs> is displeased. They're unable to accept what Jesus has said. They begin to question him and try to throw the law back in his face. They say that Christ is to remain forever. How can you go? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. What are you talking about? But this is all based on their assumptions that he would be coming as a conquering king and establish a kingdom right there and then. But that's not God's plan. Christ's first coming is about salvation. The crowd completely missed this in the Old Testament. His second coming is about conquering all of God's enemies and building the kingdom. The crowd then mocks him with their next question. Who is the Son of Man? They're basically asking, what kind of Son of Man are you talking about? And this shows us that they clearly do not believe that the person in front of them, Jesus, is the Son of Man. The crowd's expectations for God and how He should set up His kingdom cloud their sight to God's true plan. What people need most is salvation from sin. The crowd cannot reconcile the idea of a murdered Messiah and the political military deliverer that they awaited. If this is Jesus' plan, He can't be the real Messiah. The crowd immediately renders Jesus an imposter and not the real Son of Man. And they abandon Him. But look at the love of Christ. Our King is patient and long-suffering. He pleased with the people one last time to acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. His last compassionate cry demonstrates love and a warning. Jesus, the light of the world, will be among them only a little while longer. He's saying, here I am. Follow me. I'm leaving soon. This language of a little while was used earlier in John 7.33 to convey Jesus' imminent departure. Christ implores the people to walk in the light so that darkness would not overtake them. Because he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. I don't know about you, but for myself, if I wake up in the middle of the night in my bedroom, sometimes I still bump into things and hurt myself. And I've lived there for how many years? But if you live your life in darkness and you can't see what's in front of you and what dangers are there, that's real, real danger right there. We take for granted that we can move around, travel anytime we want. But in Christ's day, you got to remember all they would have are candles or oil lamps to light their way. So he's talking about that. He uses this analogy. People wouldn't travel at night because it would be too dangerous. Think of trying to travel with a candle or an oil lamp. How far ahead of yourself can you see? Not very far. 
And they wouldn't want to burn a candle or use a lamp because that was expensive and time intensive to make a candle. So this metaphor of light and darkness Jesus is using to represent the Israelites' spiritual life. The Lord knew there was only a short time for people to hear and respond. And those who failed to pursue the light would lose it. In verse 36, we see the end of Jesus' public ministry to Israel. He goes and hides himself. The opportunity has passed. God's patience was at an end. And Jesus' hiding was acting out the warning that he had just pronounced. God is giving the people what they want, their own sin. Despite all the evidence in front of him, or in front of them, the Jewish people rejected Jesus and concluded that the imposter should be executed. So we see here that this is the end of Jesus' ministry. The time has come for the rubber to meet the road, so to speak. It's the cross. You're either for him or with him, or you're against him. So, are you with Jesus? Do you know him? Have you submitted to him as your Messiah? A lot of what I feel I read and studied and talked about tonight is all about pointing to the cross. So if you do not know Jesus, it's an open invitation for all who would believe in Him. He draws all men to Himself. If you do not know Him, talk to one of your youth leaders, talk to Pastor Jules. I'd be happy to talk to anyone. But following Christ is worth it. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that you've enjoyed this teaching. Please visit us at cedarcrest.church/students.